The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an, was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from the throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. I recently had the opportunity to go and visit one of our missions that we support in Scotland. And I was surprised to find that the nation is at best 0.2% Christian today. Uh, now that, that figure is inflated. Uh, we're not talking about gospel-believing Christians. Uh, but what's interesting to me is, is that Scotland has this history of amazing works of God. They've experienced a number of revivals that they are famed for. <clears throat> a number of famous missionaries that I love to follow are from Scotland. Uh, one of those is a guy by the name of John Patton of years past, uh, one of my favorite missionaries. And uh, he was a missionary who was uh, young and he was excited about the gospel. And he was so excited about the gospel that he got this idea in his head that he wanted to go and take the gospel to the New Hebrides Islands, to cannibals who ate people to share them uh, with them about Jesus Christ. He had such a big vision of God and God's sovereignty that he really believed that his God was able to save even those who were farthest away from God. And when he had this vision, of course, uh, he had an older Christian, um, but instead of encouraging him, uh, this older Christian actually discouraged him, and he writes about this in his autobiography, and here's what he says about that conversation, a very interesting conversation. He says this, amongst the many who sought to deter me was one dear old Christian gentleman whose crowning argument always was, the cannibals? You will be eaten by the cannibals. At last I replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in that great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Oh, isn't that a good quote? Um, maybe not as humble as we should be, but a very good quote. A quote that really, I think, rightly articulates his vision of himself in light of eternity. Well, see, Patton's heart, I believe, captured the heartbeat that God has for the nations. 
Uh, he understood that, that God loved the nation, even the, the cannibals. He, he loves them and wants them to come to the saving knowledge of himself. And it was that love of God and his feeling of his heartbeat that sent him and propelled him to go to the nations. He wasn't moved by safety. He was moved by God. He had experienced the mercy of God and he wanted others to experience that same mercy. Well, we're back in our No Escape series in the book of Jonah this morning. And we are looking at God's unrelenting mercy in Jonah 3. Now, just to catch you up to speed, if you're just joining us, uh, we know from 2 Kings 14 that he is prophesying during the reign of King Jeroboam II of Israel. Uh, This is a a reign that had been characterized by the expansion of borders. Uh, They had reclaimed some land that had been taken by the Syrians. Uh, It was a, a reign that was characterized by peace and prosperity, and yet at the same time, we are given that all too common refrain about the kings of Israel. We are told that Jeroboam, like his fathers, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And that is the context out of which we find Jonah coming and prophesying. This sets the backdrop of God calling Jonah, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, For their evil has come up before me. See, Nineveh stood as the capital of Assyria, who would lead Israel into exile just decades later. And yet here in this text, we find God sending him to go and to declare this judgment of God upon them. See, Nineveh, it was a powerful nation. It was a great nation. And even though this letter of Jonah is about Nineveh, it is for Israel. And we need to continue to remind ourselves of of that. See, the ironic, sharp edge of this message about a pagan king quickly and fully leading his people into repentance upon hearing God's word from God's prophet ought to cut Jeroboam II to the heart. This king of Israel, who was also doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as his fathers had done, needed to listen and hear how he ought to lead the nation in responding to the word of God. But don't miss this. Jonah isn't ultimately about a great fish or a great prophet or a great city, but about our great God. And that's who we want to behold this morning. So if you're taking notes, our big idea is this, and you can write this down, that repentant sinners receive and experience the mercy of God. Repentant sinners, they both receive and experience the mercy of God. And that's what we're going to be meditating on this morning. But as we do that, I want to pray again and just ask the Lord to help us. Would you pray with me? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, this morning as we come before you, uh, we come before you as the year draws to an end, uh, the school year, and as the heat is warming up, and Lord, we have so many ways that we can be distracted. Father, there's so many things that can take our attention, rob our attention from you, and yet this morning we have gathered as a people to hear from your word, because we want to be transformed by it. We want to be changed and shaped by your word this morning. And so uh, I just ask this morning, Father, that you would gift us, that you would bless us with your um, spirit working amongst us, thriving in and amongst us. Uh, we ask for that, that thing that Ian Bounds calls the, a holy unction as the word of God is preached today. Lord, that you would do much more than what I could do with my own words, that you and through your spirit would come in and transform and shape lives for the glory of your name. Lord, do this, we pray. Amen. Well, the first thing that we see is this in verses 1 to 4. It's experiencing mercy changes everything. Experiencing mercy changes everything. Now, you'll notice that this text begins in verse 1 with 
then, a time indicator telling us that it is coming after something that has preceded. And this then is pregnant with all kinds of meaning. In fact, if you read this in some manuscript, some ancient manuscripts leave a large gap between Jonah 2 and Jonah 3 just to show that there is a newness in the day that is about to begin in Jonah 3 that is different than what has preceded it. See, Jonah before this has run from God and God rescued him through the baptismal-like waters of salvation, through judgment and that great fish that has just spit him up on shore just three days after being swallowed and delivered. And that, I believe, shows us and highlights for us Something very significant. Geographically, Jonah's right back where he started. He he wanted to avoid Nineveh, and now he's right back at Nineveh where he ran from. So geographically, he is exactly where he started, but something drastically and dramatically has changed. Spiritually, he is in a different place. He is in a place of obedience and sacrifice and submission to the will of God. Do you see this? Same place, a different Jonah. And that's what we find in these verses. So look with me in verses 1 to 4 at Jonah's response in the text. It says this, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, a few things fascinate me about what we just read. Now, first, you'll notice that God's mercy makes us usable. God's mercy makes us usable. Maybe you saw that. Now, you'll take note that the text highlights that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, what? A second time. Did you notice that? A second time. It's not the first time. So Jonah here, it's being highlighted, gets a do-over. Now, if you read through the Bible, what you're going to find is that there are not many prophetic mulligans, right? Where God calls a prophet to do something, he disobeys, and so God gives him a second chance. Because God takes prophecy seriously. You'll remember that the Bible says that if you add to or you take away from a prophecy, uh, you face Death, that's the punishment for not obeying God. See, Jonah deserved death, but he has received God's mercy and a second chance to be used by God. I don't know about you, but I know that me in my life, I need second and third and fourth and sometimes fifth chances, right? Like that's just the nature of who we are. We are sinners who are being saved by grace, who are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next into the image of the Son. And I often wish that it was like 12 clicks at a time, but it's often one and maybe even a half a click towards God and His grace and towards transformation in the way that I need and desire and want. Don't misunderstand me. We never want to assume on the mercy of God. Paul warns of assuming on God's grace in Romans 6.1 when he asks, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And his answer quickly is this, God forbid. But when you find yourself falling into sin again and again, don't ever forget the God who calls us to forgive, not just seven times, but 77, because this is what our God looks like in the forgiveness of sins towards His children. 
And I so often want God to hurry up and get done with sanctifying me. I am so impatient. I don't like imperfection. I don't like meeting the mark. And yet God is calling us towards patience and sanctification. Uh, It reminds me a lot of my son, Jack. Uh, We have these games that we play, these epic games of bump out. It's a basketball game. If you don't like basketball, don't worry about it. It's just a competition. And it gets really rough sometimes. And sometimes Jack gets really upset because he loses. Because by the way, he's like four four feet like smaller than me, right? He's uh, a foot smaller than his brother's. And he just gets really upset because he thinks he should be winning all the time. And have you ever had that experience where you feel like you should be winning all the time? Maybe you had this like spiritual experience where you felt like everything changed and then you sinned again and you just wanted to give up? I think that's when we need to be reminded that we are not God. God is God. God is transforming us. And he is patient with us. And he is forgiving. And he is transforming and shaping us. And it's just taking a lot longer than we think it should. See, when we get impatient on God changing our hearts, we also miss the largesse of God's mercy towards us. And here's the problem. Come in close. It's it's those who are intimately aware of the vastness of the mercy of God that make the best witnesses to the beauty of the mercy of God. Did you catch that? It's those who have actually experienced and tasted and seen the beauty of the majesty of God that are most equipped to talk about it. You can't read about the mercy of God in a book and be rightly equipped to declare the mercy of God. The mercy of God is something that you need to experience. You need to sense and see that you are a sinner that has only been saved by the grace and mercy of God. That it's nothing in you. That you came to Him guilty and you said, I have nothing to give you and I'm worthy of judgment and yet you forgave. That's what God needs to do in us if we want to be used by Him. Don't miss that. See, those who have been forgiven much and since the depths of God's forgiveness make the best ambassadors of God's grace. So when you know that you've stood guilty before God, rightly condemned for your sins, and you hear that surprising, pardoning voice declaring deliverance, not guilty, you are humbled and ready to serve God. See, I'm not talking about a mere theological understanding of mercy. I think that's important. It's fundamental. But I'm talking here even more more precisely about Jonah, whose skin was bleached and whose smell reeked from being in the belly of the great fish that swallowed his body to rescue his soul. That was the man that was ready to preach the message of mercy. And many of us will carry the stench of where we have come from to declare the goodness of the grace of God. See, that's the dude that God's prepared to preach about the mercy of God, Jonah. See, those who know grace, they show grace best. I think uh, John Owen said it this way. The word can only come with power to our hearers, our, our people that we are preaching to, our children that we are sharing the gospel with, our, our neighbors. It, it, it can only come with power to our hearers when it has come with power to our own hearts. And that is what has happened to Jonah. And that's why Jonah is different. But second in this text, notice here in these verses we just read that God's mercy also leads to obedience. Did you notice that Jonah's response was was so interesting? In both Jonah 1 and Jonah 3.1, God tells Jonah, arise and go. So first section begins this way. This section begins this way. Uh, You'll remember that Jonah 1 is followed by, but Jonah rose to flee and he became shark bait. 
Now in Jonah 3, what we find is, is that same call, but this time it says, so, not but, but so Jonah arose and went. He obeyed God. See, true repentance, I think, leads to obedience. Now the process, it's not always clean. In fact, it's often not clean, is it? It takes time, and God has to to be patient with us because we are so rebellious and, and we push back. But it always leads ultimately to a new way of life. A life, that, a life that looks so much more like Jesus. Third, did you notice in these verses that mercy sees God as greater than great enemies? Mercy, if you've experienced it, it, it begins to see God as greater than great enemies. See, in verse 3 we see that God called Jonah to preach judgment against the exceedingly great city of Nineveh. Now he's already said that it's great, but he needs to remind us it's not just great, it's exceedingly great. Can you imagine how lonely and small Jonah must have felt walking through that great city, freshly spit up by the great fish. You know, this morning I wondered maybe like the success of the message that we're going to see, maybe I'm just doing this thing all wrong. Maybe I'm dressing too nice. Maybe I need to cover myself in fish guts or something. But he's walking through this city, like really, I'm, I'm sure, staunchly, I'm just guessing. That's how I image and envision it. And he's walking through, it's huge. And so he's probably stinky and nobody wants to be around him and there are people all around and it's this huge city that he just keeps on walking and walking all alone. None of his, his friends or his family are around. And he walks step by step. Nineveh was great physically. And if it took three days to walk it, uh, what this is saying is actually that it is the same as saying that it is somewhere around 30 to 40 miles in diameter. It's huge. It's massive. Now the problem that some commentators have with this, saying that it's a three days walk, is that at its zenith, uh, its biggest point, uh, Nineveh was really only three miles across and occupied somewhere around 1,850 acres. Like, I don't know if you can envision that. Um, But with a population of somewhere between 120 and 175,000 people. In other words, that, that distance wouldn't take three days to walk. So some say that this area of three days, it must speak of the suburbs of Nineveh as well. Just a really big, you know, the country region, it just kept on going. Well, maybe so. And there's a lot of debate over the three-day journey. But I like actually looking in the book of Jonah itself for the significance of this three-day journey. And Jonah also spent three days on a journey down in the belly of the fish called death. So I'm just wondering... As we read this, could it be that Jonah's three-day journey into Nineveh actually envisions Jonah walking through a great spiritual graveyard of people with tomb-like hearts that are hard towards God and, like Sodom and Gomorrah, destined for his wrath? See, Nineveh isn't merely great for its physical size. Nineveh is great for the purposes of God. God is about to make a display of his mercy. Now, as you look at this, don't miss this. God is sovereign here. He is displaying himself as sovereign. Sovereign over great fish. Sovereign over great storms. Sovereign over great enemies. And sovereign over great cities. God is sovereign. And don't miss this as well. Our God is pictured in all of these as greater. Greater than great monsters. Greater than great cities. And greater than death itself. But there's another thing we see in these verses, these first four verses, a beautiful thing, and that's this. Our great God can overthrow great hard-hearted peoples. Our great God can overthrow great hard-hearted peoples. We need to believe that in the depths of our souls if we're going to be good witnesses for Jesus Christ. You'll notice here in Jonah 3 that we receive a snapshot of the message that Jonah preached. It says this, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. 
That's, I believe, a synopsis of the message. Now, at first glance, Jonah's message hearkens back to the Lord's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. If you go and read there, what you'll find is is that God looked on the, the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were famed for their wickedness. And he told Lot that he was going to overthrow these cities, raining down fire from heaven on them. So as you're reading about Nineveh, and God overthrowing them, then you're reminded of how he overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you're thinking, well, well, maybe that's what God's about to do to them. See, Lot's family only had a few hours to escape. Here's an interesting fact. But Nineveh is given 40 days. And you have to wonder, why did Lot get, like, hours, and here, this city gets 40 days? Same kind of judgment, and yet 40 days, more time. Why 40? See, 40 days of waiting, I believe, meant that it was still possible to escape judgment. Do you see it? If the declaration was that judgment's coming and there's no hope, then why wait? But if he says you have 40 days, then I think the hope is that maybe there's something that we can do in that 40 days that would turn back the wrath of God. Or, in the words of a a very wise philosopher named Lloyd Christmas from Dumb and Dumber, So you are telling me there is a chance. Yes, there is a chance. In other words, Jonah likely thought this meant a death sentence for Nineveh where God would turn over rocks on the Ninevites' heads. But God sought to turn over rebellious hearts so that they would repent and turn to him for deliverance and mercy. Now don't miss this. The good news of salvation comes with a warning about the nature of the severity of God's judgment. He is just and righteous in all that he does. And the gospel, it isn't merely that God saves us from external enemies like sin and death and the devil. It's not just something that that saves us from physical enemies like the Taliban or, or, or Satan. It's not merely that he will cure us from our sin problem. It's not simply that God will be for us if we choose him. The gospel is a message that says that we are so utterly broken, sinful, and rebellious against the high king of heaven that we deserve his wrath, and he is utterly just in all of it. See, there is nothing in us to protect us from that judgment. Left to ourselves, we would drink the cup of God's wrath in full. As Randy Alcorn says in his book on heaven, he says this, he says, hell is our default setting, not heaven. We are not born destined for heaven. We are born with a a label stamped on us that says that we are on our way to hell because we are born in sin. And we need to keep the question before us about the nature of who God is constantly and who we are. We need to be asking ourselves constantly uh, the question that R.C. Sproul's book asks when he says, we are saved from what? Great book. Let me just give you like the, the end of that book and where it goes in 300 pages in just a few, a few words. What are we saved from? We are saved from God. We are saved by God. And I would add another section to his book, and that is that we are saved to God. That is what we are saved by, from, and to. It is God's mercy that causes us to see that we like Sodom and Gomorrah like Nineveh, like Babylon, deserve the wrath of God. And the Bible really should lead us, if we're reading it honestly, to cry out for God's mercy and grace, like Christian from John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Have you ever seen, have you ever read this? It's like one of the most famous Christian works, famous books of all time. 
And it begins with this man, Christian, who's on a journey. And the the whole book is really a, a kind of analogy for the Christian life. And it begins, this book, with Christian fleeing the city of destruction where he has been born and spent all of his days with a book in his hand, and you can guess what that book is, and a burden on his back, and he is crying out, life, life, eternal life. He's looking for life because he knows that that city is destined for death. And what is it that led him to run, looking for another place to live, a new kingdom where there is hope and salvation? It is the Bible. The Bible should send us running, looking for God and the mercy that only he can provide. I'm just wondering this morning if you have sensed the sense that you need to run to God. If you have sensed the the reality, the awesome, fearsome reality that you're a sinner before a holy and righteous God. Have you really understood in the depths of your soul, felt it, not just heard about it, the fact that you need mercy? Well, friend, let me just tell you this morning, if that's not been you, that it is only the mercy of God that leads you to understand your need of the mercy of God. So I'm going to be praying for you later that God would help you to sense that need for mercy in a new and a fresh way. But also remember that Israel's king, Jeroboam, did not repent. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not lead his people to repent. But catch what happens in this people that are famed for their wickedness and how they respond to the word of God. We see this in verses 5 to 9, and this is our second main point, which is this. Sinners repent seeking God's mercy. Now, you don't want to miss this. You'll remember in verse 4, Jonah only made it a day's journey out of the three that he was supposed to take. And he preached that in 40 days Nineveh should be overthrown. And then in verse 5, this is how the greatly wicked city responds. It says this in verse 5. It says this uh, in verses 5 to 9. It says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They believed God. They called for a fast and they, they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne and he removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the kings and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Now, commentators have spent a lot of ink on this text. Um, And we see a number of things here. The first is this. You'll notice the foreign people believe God pervasively in verse 5. The foreign people believe God pervasively in verse 5. Now commentators spend a lot of ink in wrestling with how Nineveh understood the message so clearly and how they could have responded so quickly. You can see how this would be confusing. You've got a, a Hebrew coming and speaking to Ninevites, speaking different languages, and how is it that it translates to them? I believe that we see evidence of the reality that the Word of God really is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the hearts, as Hebrews 4 shows us. But how do the Assyrians understand this message? See, God speaks to this very thing, I believe, in Ezekiel 3, 4-7. 
Now, you'll remember in Ezekiel, God is in context calling Ezekiel to preach to Israel. And he describes them. He says this, They are not a people of obscure speech and dense language like the Assyrians, whose talk you can't understand. Had I sent you to them, however, they would certainly have understood you. Yet the house of Israel refuses to listen to you since they refuse to listen to me. I mean, Israel's problem wasn't understanding God because of the difficulty of language barriers. The problem was their sinful hearts that refused to obey what they clearly understood. Have you ever experienced that? Like maybe you wish that you could make it hard to understand Scripture to excuse like your difficulty with obedience to Scripture when in reality the real trouble is you know what it says and you don't want to do it. But what's fascinating to me is here that you see an indictment against Israel. I mean, do you remember God's call to Isaiah in Isaiah 6 where he has this majestic vision of the Lord high lifted up with angelic beings calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is holy. And, and, and in that moment, God says, who will go for me to preach? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And so he sends him to preach to them knowing they will never repent and believe. He actually tells Isaiah, Here's what you're going to do. You're going to preach, and you're going to preach, and you're going to preach, and they're going to hear you less and less and less until their hearts are absolutely stony hard. He would preach long and hard to God's chosen people, and they would not listen. They would listen less and less. And yet here we find these pagans far from God who hated God, hear God's word. And did you notice what the text says? It didn't say that they believed stinky Jonah. It says they believed the holy God. They believed what God had said. They heard his word is God's word. And that changed everything. Here we find them hearing, believing, and repenting. And brothers and sisters, how soft are our hearts towards the word of God today? When we hear God's word clearly, is it penetrating and changing and softening us? Because the Word of God calls us to repent at first when we come to Christ, to repent and believe, and to enter into a lifelong journey of repenting of sin and drawing near to Him, seeking more and more of Christ. As commentator Jack Sassant says in his commentator, the problem isn't with grasping the meaning of God's message, but in obeying it. God calls His people to obedience. But in verses 6-9, to nine, you also see this, the foreign king believed God and led his people to repent. So it's not just the people from from least to greatest. Even the king himself is following along in repentance. Now think about this for a second. King Jeroboam II of Israel, he he has not led his people into righteousness, but into doing what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. And I believe what we find here is A situation where the king Jeroboam, as he's hearing this, he needs to get his pen out and take notes on how to respond to the word of God. How to lead God's people to to repent before God. He never responded to God's word like this. Now, you'll remember that Jeroboam loved the word of God whenever the word of God said, I want you to expand the borders. He's like, I like that. I like a bigger yard. I like more power. I like more authority. I can follow God in that. Maybe some of us are like that. There are things that God tell us, tell us to do that we're like, I'm happy to do that. That's easy. I'm righteous today. But then there's this other part where God tells Jeroboam, you need to put those gods, those foreign gods away from you. 
And you're going to get a lot of flack over it. People are going to be angry because nobody likes you, know, you to take their gods away. But you need to do it. You're going to lose popularity, but you need to do it because you know who God is. And he didn't do that. And so he needs to take notes about what it looks like to truly repent before the Lord. And you'll notice how this foreign king responds. He humbles himself. Did you see where he actually arose from his throne, takes off his robe that communicated his glory and his greatness above everyone else? He covered himself with sackcloth. Uh, literally a, a word from sack in the Hebrew that, that is, it means sackcloth, a hairy sort of garment that was exclusively used for the purpose of communicating humility and a, a, a sorrow over sin. It is a, 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 a thing that you would wear to communicate that you were sorrowful. In fact, Psalm 30.12 says that when you take the sackcloth off, it signals that joy starts again. Psalm 30.12 says, you loosen my sackcloth to dress me in joy. See, this nameless king humbled himself along with all the nobles of the land and demanded every person and animal to follow suit and to cry out to God in prayer and deliverance. I, I uh, had my dog recently die this, this last week. Really sad. Some of you aren't going to be able to come back after that. But um, loved our dog. Um, my kids loved him more than I did, but I loved him. He was a good dog. He never bit my kids. He was warm. He was always right there, like, licking me when I didn't want him to. But loved this dog. Missed this dog. Missed having him next to me uh, and bugging me all the time. But there was never a time where we actually put clothes on our dog. So some of you are like that. You probably at Christmas have, like, the little hat that you throw on him and that kind of thing, Right? Some of you are like, yeah, you don't want to admit it, but you got like the Santa hat and you maybe even have a vest that you stick on the dog. And, and those are like festive garments that are declaring like, hey, this is a happy time and that's why we have the dog dressed up. I'm guessing that's why you do that. But here what we find is, is that he is actually saying, I want you to go out and all of your pets and all of your animals, I want you to cover them in sackcloth so that they, like you, are a reminder wherever you go that you and every extension of you is weeping before the Lord and begging for forgiveness. That's how serious this is. It is a pervasive repentance before God. Uh, we are, are absolutely uh, going DEFCOM like six or one, whatever's the biggest, and we need to get serious about what the Lord's doing. They sat in these ashes and they fasted from food and water. I don't even know if it's for 40 days. I don't think that it is, but it doesn't really let us know how long this was, right? And we know later that Jonah's going to wait and see what happens. But can you imagine if Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi showed up on the news today, hugging each other, weeping together, saying we need to repent before the Lord for the sins of the people of our country. In fact, I've got some sins that, that we need to, to cite. So for the next 48 hours, I'm joking, we're going to be citing specifically the sins that we've committed while in office. I'm not calling parties, you know, Democrat, Republican. But imagine that there was that kind of, that kind of crying out to God in repentance before him in our nation. I think it would blow us away. That kind of repentance and crying out to God that Andy prayed for in the service where the newspapers take notice of the way that the people of God are repenting before their God. Wouldn't that be a glorious day? We're not promised that, but wouldn't that be a glorious day? But not only that, this king tells them to turn and repent from their evil way and from the violence of their hands. See, don't miss this. When people truly repent, it changes the way they see themselves before God and it changes the way they see others. 
True repentance is going to be visibly seen in the way they approach God and others. You'll notice the king, he steps down off his throne when he senses the sovereignty of God drawing near. That is what the human heart does when the human heart sees God in all of his holiness. He steps down. He steps down from the throne. He gets on his face because he realizes who God is and that God has shown up and changes his life. He humbles himself before God. God's people, they pray for mercy when they see God high and lifted up. They realize there is help that only he can give, help that they need. He obeys God. See, God cares about obedience. But also, did you notice that God cares about how people treat other people? And what a beautiful God this is. He's not just saying, like, make much of me. He's saying that to make much of me, you will love others and your neighbors sacrificially. See, we serve a just God. And the way that we treat others also says something about how we view God. So if we use and abuse others, we are saying that we do not believe in a just God to whom we must give an account. But when true repentance breaks out and people treat, they will treat others differently. That's the way the gospel works. But catch this. The experience of mercy will lead us to live just lives. It is the experience of mercy that leads us to live just lives. If we have not experienced mercy, we will know nothing of what it means to live a life of justice. See, just living according to the Bible looks like loving your neighbor. It looks like loving your enemy. And true love for God leads to a love of neighbor. One of the great joys that I have experienced while being at Trinity over the last 10 years is doing new member interviews. I love it. I get to meet with all the new members, and I get to talk to them about their testimony and how God has worked in their lives. And I get to ask them questions, questions like, uh, what is it that drew you to this church? What is it that keeps you here? What's been encouraging? And do you know what has just sort of grown to a swelling proportion over the last decade, year after year, and even more so over the last three years, as I've had new member interviews, and I've asked, why is it that you came, and why is it that you stayed? And one of the things they've said is, this is such a loving body of people. I feel loved here. I feel like people really care for me. Uh, This is a friendly church, a welcoming church. In fact, I'm not even kidding. I had somebody the other day that said they had a friend who came to church, and they said they weren't coming back. And they said, well, why not? And they said, well, I know that if I go, that people are going to try to talk to me and be nice. You can scare as many people off as you want with that. If you want to scare people off because you're being kind, now don't be like weird kind, you know? Like don't follow them in the parking lot and say like, hey, I'm going to come with you home. Like not that kind of thing, but like a sincere like, hey, you know, is there a way that I can pray for you? How's the Lord at work in your lives? Are you a Christian? Great ways to love people, to be inviting in the body. I believe that that is what the gospel does in our hearts. It should make us a soft a tender, a loving, a gracious, a patient people. See, when we sense the greatness of God's justice and sense our great need of His mercy, it will make us tender towards others. But don't miss this. Verse 9 makes clear the sovereign God is not obligated to show mercy because they were broken over their sin. He's not obligated to do that because they repented. See, the sovereign God is also free in showing mercy to whom he will. Uh, did you notice what it says? The king says, who knows? Who knows? Maybe, maybe God will forgive us. Maybe he will relent. We don't know. And I think that what he's doing is highlighting that only God knows. See, God can't be controlled. He's not tame. His forgiveness is completely his prerogative because none of us deserve it. And that is the nature of mercy. See, mercy is not handing out a punishment that is deserved and earned and owned. 
and not having a ground for being forgiven. And yet they repent because they are banking. This pagan nation, they are banking on the hope that God is merciful. But catch what God does. Third and last, God shows mercy to sinners in verse 10. He shows mercy to sinners in verse 10. You'll notice what it says in verse 10. He says, it says this. This is, the, this is the end. This is what happens. When God saw what they did, how they turned away from their evil, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, in verse 10, we find that God turns back his wrath and he relents. Now, I want to tease that out because God relents elsewhere in Scripture, like in Exodus 32. And you might say, well, what does that mean that, that God relents? Did he change something? Did he do something different? Is that really the character of God? You'll remember in Exodus 32, he relents. There, God relents of wiping out all of Israel because they have created an idol. As Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law of God, making a covenant with his people, declaring, I am your God, you are my people, and Moses can't even get down before they've already made an idol and broken the first rule. And it's in that moment that He is ready to wipe them out and start over with Moses, begin a new creation with Moses, just like with Noah. He's like, I've done this before, I can do it again. And yet Moses intercedes for the people of God. And he turns back, God turns back the wrath of God. And it says that he relents from wiping them out. But how does this text and texts like these fit with texts like Numbers 23, 19, also from Moses, who says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. I mean, when he relents, did he change his mind? Why does Moses petition God to change his mind about wiping out Israel if he doesn't change his mind? Well, I think there are a few factors that can help us understand this relenting language. This is a hard question, but, but a few things that might just help us frame it. First, we, we need to understand the nature of a prophet. See, John Frame says, Prophets do not simply predict future events. They also interpret history. They exhort to repentance and faithfulness and proclaim God's standards and promises. So the nature of prophecy is sometimes for the very purpose of exposing God's will so that men will repent, just like we find here in Nineveh, where God overturns it by turning their hearts upside down. So he didn't turn the city over for death and judgment, but instead turn their hearts over to make them turn towards God. Second, The word relent actually comes from a Hebrew word that can have a range of meanings. So it doesn't always just mean relent like we would think in the English. Uh, This word relent actually can mean to have compassion or pity. And God shows grace when none is due. It is the same word that we find in Joel 2.13, where it says, And rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord, your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And He relents over disaster. In Jonah 4.2, Jonah will go on to say, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my country? That, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. It's your character to turn back from disaster when God's people come to you and repent. See, Jonah understands God to be a merciful God, not a, a God that changes his mind willy-nilly. He's a merciful God. And third, even the word overthrown can mean the destruction of your city or it can mean the turning over of hearts and wills of people like we find here in Nineveh. For instance, God overthrew the hearts of the Egyptians to make them hate their slaves and Israel, which God used to save his people. But catch this. Nineveh needed one greater than Jonah. We've seen this throughout. 
They needed more than sackcloth and ashes and fasts. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus shows up and tells the religious elite of that day that they too needed mercy from God because they are even guiltier than Nineveh for not seeking God's mercy. Now just let that sink in. These guys thought they were super holy. They were obeying the rules. They made the rules. And yet God comes to them and he says, you remember in the rule book, you have that whole set on like Nineveh and Babylon and how wicked and sinful they are. You're in a worse spot than they are. Now, for religious, you know, like theologues, those are fighting words. And it's in the midst of that that Jesus tells them, I know what you want. You want a sign. And you need mercy, but you want a sign. You need mercy that only I can bring. And you're asking me for a sign. And so Jesus responds in Matthew 12, 39 to 41. And he says this, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And maybe more appropriately, someone greater than Jonah is here. Now, if you're a non-Christian, I don't want you to miss what this means today. This means that you are even guiltier than Nineveh. We all are left to ourselves. See, Nineveh heard that Jonah was spit out of a fish and repented and believed the gospel, and they were saved from destruction. But we have a clearer message in Christ. We have a much clearer message. We have someone better than Jonah. See, Jesus is the eternal Son of God who came and took on flesh, lived and died and was raised from the dead, calling all men to repentance and faith in God. Jesus himself says, a greater judgment awaits those who don't hear and believe the good news of Jesus dying on the cross to save you from your sins. Even the men of Nineveh will rise up around Jesus at the great judgment when Jesus returns to judge all for their deeds, and they will say, we had less than you do and responded completely differently. But catch this. We have a better intercessor than Moses or Jonah too. See, you have the eternal Son of God who has the eternal love of God who desires to lavish that upon you. And when you put your faith in Him, you become no longer a rebel, an enemy, and wicked person who is far from God. You become a child, an adopted child who is invited into his home and to eat at his table. That is what God invites his children to. So let me encourage you, if you've not put your faith in Christ, there is nothing better, there's nothing more important, there's nothing more meaningful for your day, for your life, than that decision. And don't leave without talking to me about what it looks like to become a Christian. And Christians, something that we must deal with in this text is that we too have received a message to go and tell just like Jonah did. Did you catch that? We too have been told to arise and go, haven't we? You'll remember in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, this message about the kingdom that has arrived. You'll remember that it ends with this declaration of Jesus that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, to Jesus Christ. He is the authority above all others. And he says, now go therefore and what? Make disciples. Did you catch that? Now go and make disciples. I'm telling you to go. Who goes? Anyone who is a disciple of Jesus goes to make disciples. 
And so we are to go and make disciples. We have been told to go just like Jonah was told to go. Now, if Jonah was about you or us this morning, and Jesus has told you to go and make disciples of all nations, would you be living a Jonah 1 life this morning that says, but Jonah ran, but Josh ran, but Trinity ran? Or would you be living a Jonah 3 life that says, so Jonah arose and went? How are you going? How are you going and listening to God? Are you going to make disciples of all nations? Are you sharing Christ with your families? Are you giving towards the church, sending out missionaries and supporting missionaries in far off places? Husbands, are you washing your wives in the Word? Mothers and fathers, are we nurturing our kids in the fear and admonition of Jesus? Are you sharing Christ with your non-Christian friends and co-workers? Are we hungry to see churches planted in distant lands where there is no testimony of Jesus Christ? Let it be said of Trinity Bible Church that Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. So Trinity arose and went. Let's pray.